Baseball is the analogy of life. For small moments of success, being a team player, but you're also alone. Baseball is a team sport, but pretty much everything that you do on the field and off the field is alone, but it contributes to a greater good. Welcome to Running is Cheaper Than Therapy podcast. I am your host, Dr. Weta L. Brown. I inspire and promote movement. I explain how running adds to life from a mental wholeness aspect. How obstacles can be overcome in life to make it to your finish line. Welcome to Running is Cheaper Than Therapy, episode 68. Today, I have a special guest, a classmate, although he's younger than me. We both went to Florida A&M University, which sits at the highest of seven hills in Tallahassee, Florida. I went to homecoming in 2021, and at convocation, Roy Wood Jr., my guest today was a speaker, and his story moved me. He got in some trouble in Florida A&M at Tallahassee Mall. He stole some jeans, got arrested, was placed on probation. He was placed on suspension at the school. He only could go to class and at that time, he seriously started working on his comedy because he couldn't really do anything else. He went to class, went to work, and now social activities. And he talked about how certain people did not dismiss him or throw him away because he made a mistake, how they gave him a second chance, and how valuable that was, and how we too often dismiss people with our cancel culture. People make mistakes. People may say things that they regret later. And people can change just because in 2005, you catch a clip of someone saying something. In 2021, you bring it up saying you don't like them or you're not supportive of a cause that they may be pursuing. People change and people make mistakes. No one is perfect. So his story inspired me. And while my podcast is called Running is Cheaper Than Therapy, I also have guests who have overcome obstacles to make it to their finish line. And I believe Roy Wood Jr. has overcome a lot of obstacles and he's made it to his finish line. And he continues to inspire, continues to uplift his crowd hone in on his crab. I think it's a privilege and honor to know that we both attended the same university. Florida A&M University produces excellence in every film. I could go on and on and on and on and on, but that's not the focus of this podcast today. But I love my college. If you don't know that about me, I love Florida A&M. And I will forever. But let me tell you a little bit about Roy Wood Jr. or a little bit more. Again, he's a graduate of Florida A&M University. He is from Birmingham, Alabama. We also had in common. I lived in Birmingham. I did my residency there. He is a correspondent on Comedy Central's Emmy-nominated The Daily Show with Trevor Noah. And I love him. I love his book, Born a Crime. If you hadn't read it or listened to it, I highly recommend it. I recommend the audio because he actually narrates it. And it's funny yet serious and talks about his life. Roy Wood Jr. also has two podcasts, Roy's Job Fair and Beyond the Scenes. He serves as an executive producer. He's produced... A PBS documentary, The Neutral Ground, and HBO Max project called 1% Happy. He's also working on an untitled medical field comedy for NBC. He's working on a comedy about the National Guard. 
He's been featured on The Late Show with David Letterman. He's appeared on Def Comedy Jam. He's appeared on Late Night with Seth Meyer, Conan, The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon, The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. He's also been on a few sitcoms. Sullivan and Son, he also starred in a um, pilot that wasn't picked up with um, Whoopi Goldberg and worked on a um, pilot related to the time he um, got into trouble at FAMU related to probation officers. He's multifaceted. Not only is he multifaceted and a producer, a comedian, he also is a philanthropist. He um, gives up his time, of his money causes that are important to him. He is a one of a kind and I am honored and privileged to have him join me today. So welcome Roy Wood Jr. to the show. Well, thanks for joining me today. Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate you taking time out of your busy, busy schedule to be on my podcast. Well, how can I help you? I'm here to help. I'm here to talk. I'm here to do whatever you need me to do. Well, tell me, how did you get your start in comedy? Uh, You know what? That was, how can I put it? Like, I started when I was 19. And so, you know, I was a student at Florida A&M University. And I just literally, you know, it was one of those things where I wanted to do comedy. Like, I always had the itching Mm -hmm. to do comedy. But, you know, it was one of those things that it took going to college because the beauty of college is that you get to be a different person. You get to pick up a new identity. You know, you don't have to be what you were in high school. You can reinvent yourself, rebrand. So did you rebrand yourself in, in college? Yeah, for the most part. You know, what's wild is that I was still never really a class clown. I just appreciated the science of jokes. Really? And going and preparing material that was like, so in high school, I wrote the bench playing baseball. So the only way that I really saw that I could contribute was to come up with good heckles to throw at the other team. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So I'm serious. And so every day in class, I would be thinking of just the most vile, heinous, evil shit to say, to just yell across a baseball field in the middle of the afternoon. And that became, you know, that kind of started how I kind of prepared joke writing and things like that. Like that was the first set that I prepared was those heckles. High school was also the first time that I started fitting in socially. I was never in the same school system more than two years at any point in my life until high school. So because of that, it was a little difficult in a way. I never had a problem fitting in, but once I really fit in in high school, I didn't want to risk it by trying to do comedy. Mm -hmm. When I got to college, I was like, well, I have no friends. I don't know any of these people. So what the hell? I may as well try it here. And I started going over to Florida State and doing their like student talent. Like, I wasn't going to do it at FAMU out the gate because there's too much to risk. Also, you don't want to be in class with the people who booed you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> at least at Florida State, I don't know these people. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and so it kind of started from there. So my junior year was kind of the beginning of that journey. And then also, you know, my degree is in broadcast and one of the requirements of the broadcast curriculum is an impromptu speaking class. Okay. And so in this class, everybody, literally every week was, you were given a topic and you were given 10 minutes to prepare the topic. And then you had to come back in the room and present the topic. Now, mind you, this is pre-Google. Like you had to go to the library Mm -hmm. if you needed to find information. Like there was a computer lab, but the idea of internet just being on your person was still foreign in 1998. So if you didn't know what you were talking about, you had to filibuster, you had to make it up, you had to figure out a way. And so in those moments, if I got a tough topic that I didn't know anything about, it kind of became funny because it was obvious I didn't know what I was talking <laughs> about. And and it would get laughs. 
I would get laughs in class to the point where the teacher accused me of deliberately trying to throw the assignment. Really? Yeah, I got to see. I got to see. I did everything honest and earnest, and she gave me a C out of spite. And I'm convinced it's because she thought that I was showing her up, but it wasn't. I couldn't help what my face was doing. So you're just naturally funny. At that point, I guess. But I wasn't a silly person, though. You know what I mean? Like, you could be naturally funny, but a silly person knows they're funny and they're weaponizing it Mm -hmm. to manipulate social situations. I was never trying to manipulate social situations with humor, not in college, at least. And so that was kind of the first hit of the dope before I decided to do open mics and things like that. And so that's kind of where things took off from. So when you went to FAM and majored in broadcast journalism, was your ultimate goal being a comedian or did you have other aspirations? I know your father was a journalist. I wanted to be the next Stuart Scott, you know, and that's no disrespect to my father, but my father was, you know, he was a hardcore, you know, civil rights and commentary. And, you know, my dad was very much on the square of speaking out about black issues, you know, it's, The irony is that that's basically what I do now between my stand-up and The Daily Show. But Mm -hmm. at that time, I just wanted to crack jokes and talk about sports. So Stuart Scott was more of an entry point in what led me to journalism than my own father. And I have two brothers that gave journalism 40 years of their life as well. And, you know, I don't know. I, I, I just... I just really wanted to talk about it was either sports center or become a firefighter. Those were my two. Your two aspirations. Those are far goals though. Firefighter in, in sports. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't think that those two are, they're not really related. I mean, knowing what I know now about myself, I'm just an adrenaline junkie. <laughs> and that's why I like firefighting, and, but that's really all comedy is. Adrenaline junkie. Yeah. It definitely scratches that itch you're on stage in front of strangers and you have to figure out a way to manipulate their emotions and you can only use your, your words and your body. You don't have anything else. I don't have music. Mm -hmm. I don't have dancing. I don't have a colorful light display. You know, it's just Mm -hmm. talking Mm -hmm. and it's the purest form of entertainment. So did you ever dabble in the the sports? Uh, What do you mean? As far as um, journalists, I know you said Stuart Scott was one of your... Oh, no, no. When I graduated college, I was straight into stand-up. Okay. I was straight into stand-up. I didn't get any... um, I got like two job offers. One of them was to do the sports... To work the sports information desk Mm -hmm. for a newspaper, which I thought was like this big, beautiful, oh, this is a real position. And then I got started doing some digging. And it just turns out you're the guy at three o'clock in the morning that's typing all in the newspaper on page two of the sports section. It's the scores of every single professional and college sporting event that happened nationally. Okay. And your job is to type every single score. It's a lot. So that it prints. So MLB college. And that's when I realized there's 117 division one. Well, at the time it was one one twelve. It's like 112 Division One. I was like, this is too many football scores to be typing. So use a lie. I'm going to go do comedy. <laughs> so you started your junior year. You used to go to Florida State. So how did it go from, I guess, Florida State on the weekends to where you are now? You know, that's 25 years. That's a lot. We wouldn't even have the time. You know, all I can say is that when I look at where I was to where I am today, the one main recurring thing, the one recurring tenement has just been working hard and being nice to people. It's really it. You know, this is no different than any other job. You do well, somebody will recommend you and you get promoted to being a comedian in a bigger venue, working with better comedians who pay you better. Mm-hmm. You do well there, you get on TV. You do well on TV, maybe you'll get an agent. You get an agent or a manager, maybe you get casted in something. And that, and that's just kind of how the snowball started to roll down the hill for me. But, you know, in the shorter capacity, I performed locally at colleges in the city. Um, I ended up meeting a couple of guys. There was a guy at Florida State. There's a comedian over at Florida State who 
he was part of a comedy troupe. And so that comedy troupe would do shows at bars. And so in doing the bar shows, I met the comedians in town who weren't college students. Okay. And they were connected to the local comedy club. And so the guys at the local comedy club would work me when the main MC, when the the bigger local guys, mm-hmm. when they got road work, the younger guys like me got slotted in to host on those particular weekends. It's like coming off the bench in the NBA is the really the only thing I can really compare it to. So you come in and do well in Tallahassee. Mm-hmm. Next month, Panama City need an opener. Well, Panama City is going to call the booker who books Tallahassee and go, who you know that's good in the area? Okay. You do good in Panama City, you do Biloxi. Next thing you know, you do an I-10 all the way over to Beaumont. Mm-hmm. That's just how it grows. And you do well in those rooms as an MC. If they like you and you do well enough, long enough, they'll bring you back as a as a middle act, a feature act. Okay. And, you know, and so then the next thing you know, you're headlining. And that's essentially the path. It still is to this day. Like, even with everything that I've done, there's still parts of the globe that I want to do that I'm not big enough to headline overseas. Not yet. So I probably need to go with somebody and open for them, you know, or go on a smaller capacity. So the that grind, that part of it, just it that part just never stops. I wish it did, but it doesn't. I read a story about you that you passed on your midterms, basically fell in a semester to open for Tommy Davidson. Yeah, that was probably the smartest dumb thing I've ever done. (laughs) In comedy, it's called a fallout, which is you're essentially on call. And so sometimes the only way to get on the eyes and the radar of a booker is to basically like cover for another comedian. So whoever was supposed to open for Tommy Davidson canceled. And so they needed somebody in a pinch and they called me. It was to go to Charlotte and Charlotte is a solid eight hours from Tallahassee. Atlanta's four Atlanta plus Greenville Spartanburg over to Charlotte's probably about three and a half, depending on a lot of it boils down to how fast can you get through Atlanta? Of course. And I just couldn't say no. That was the first big name act I ever opened for was Tommy Davidson. The first real weekend gig, the first real, all right, I'm here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it was, I ain't going to say it was worth it, but (laughs) I understand why I did it and I had to do it. I didn't work with Tommy Davidson like four or five different times since then. (laughs) So I could have waited, but, but you want, to make sure that you go in and deliver, especially on a primetime weekend gig. Because if you deliver there, then they're on you, you know, after that. To, they know you, you present yourself as reliable and funny. I did that gig and it opened up the entire Eastern Seaboard for me. So when you prepare for a show, when you do a show, do you, have you ever had a show where you bombed, where like your jokes just weren't? Not funny, but you and you got booed. Like, how do you deal with that as a comedian? The, the let's say rejection, but the negative side of it. Um, I think that it used to sting at first, but once you realize that it's nothing personal, then you can get past it. People hating you, it's not memorable. No one remembers the musician they hate the most. Mm-hmm. You can say somebody can't sing, but at that point, they're probably so famous. They got fans. But you don't remember who you saw at a talent show when you was 22 who wasn't funny. You don't remember the comedian that wasn't funny. So you get to come back next week and get another chance. That's the thing that I always appreciated about Atlanta and doing Uptown. As tough of a room as Uptown was, they put me on stage every single Sunday night that I showed. Anytime I took that bus up to Buckhead. They would put me on stage and the audience and the, uh, even the comedians too. Nobody judged you on what you did last week. Mm-hmm. You got a new chance. You got a clean slate. So that's how I look at it. And yeah, I've bombed it. It hurts in the moment, but you know, it's temporary and it's not that big of a deal. <laughs> also in college, did you work at a radio station in Birmingham? Like, was that when you were home or? The Birmingham thing came after I graduated. 
after I graduated, I graduated in 2001 and I started at 95.7 Jams and I took over for Ricky Smiley after Ricky left to go to Dallas to start what would eventually become the big syndicated behemoth that he is today. But at the time, I was just the dude replacing the dude, which is a terrible position to be in. Why'd you say that? Because everyone loves Ricky. You're the guy replacing Ricky. So for a year, you're just going to get, you ain't Ricky. Mm -hmm. And even that, you know, to go back to the rejection thing, you know, radio is like that, where people hate the new person. They just hate them. That's true. Especially black radio. And then you give it a year of just consistently doing your job. Just show up every day, do your job. And then one day it clicks and folks go, oh yeah, we like him. You know, it's not much I can hang my hat on career-wise, but I gave the city of Birmingham my all every morning. So after a year, were they in love with you? I wouldn't say in love, but they definitely understood that comedically I was just a different flavor. Okay. I wasn't trying to be Ricky. I was trying to be Roy. Yeah. We changed the culture. We created different comedic vehicles on air. Mm -hmm. We didn't just, we expanded the idea of what comedy could be. And Birmingham is an extremely, extremely competitive market in mornings. We're one of, we, were, we were one of the few markets that had three syndicated shows and a local show, all urban. Mm -hmm. It was us. It was my local show on 95.7 Jams. It was us, Steve Harvey, Tom Joyner, and Russ Parr. And Russ Parr, that would, you know, that would, you know, be interchangeable. Sometimes it'd be Doug Banks. Sometimes it'd be Tony Scott. But there was always a fourth show. And then for a while, it was Tom Joyner, Steve Harvey, Ricky Smiley, and me. All on the air in the same market. And we were number one. The only person who would beat us every now and then was Tom Joyner. But when it came to the youngins, to the that 13 to 34 demo, mm -hmm. well, nobody touching us. Okay. I came in and we kicked all the asses. And that's something that, you know, the critical, the pressure cooker of criticism that is Birmingham, Alabama, was as important to my growth as anything else that I did. Why is that? Because you, if you're in a market with that many other Black morning shows, you have to be different but it still has to connect in a way that feels authentic. Mm -hmm. And so that forced me to be creatively different so that we could stand out. That was, you know, a really important lesson, you know, in terms of writing and creativity and stuff like that was making sure that I was doing things that were, that pushed against the traditional ideologies of what black comedy could or couldn't be and stuff like that. You know, prank calls were fine. And, you know, the weird parody songs, they were fine, you know, but let's do some weird commercials. Let's have fake callers call in on a regular basis. This is a show, so it doesn't have to all be random. We can plan on having certain people call that have a like. There's just so many things that we did, man. You know that are, you know, there's there's characters that we created on that morning show that I do on the Daily Show now. Hmm. There's a legacy, you know. So mm, radio was very very important. Radio also helped my comedy grow because I was able to go out and do a lot of different shows. I took my print phone calls that I did on the radio and I gave them away for free okay. to radio stations and markets where I wasn't getting booked. Okay. And then I would wait six months and contact those comedy clubs. And then those clubs would then book me on the strength of, oh, he's on the radio here. Okay. So, you know, just running game. Yeah, you a little notoriety. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, that, and that for sure helped a great deal. So tell me about Daily Show. When did you join Trevor Noah and about the experience working on a Daily Show? I joined 2015. It was, I joined right when Trevor, right when Trevor, I started the same day as Trevor. Okay. Put it that way. You know, they auditioned. 
I was lucky enough to find out about the audition and went in and killed it. And they booked me and immediately sent me to Madison, Wisconsin to do a ride along with the police department. Madison, Wisconsin, of all places. Yeah, baptized <laughs> in the fire. And they had just had an officer, um, you know, pretty controversial. Well, not controversial. They killed. They killed an unarmed black man. Hmm. And our job was to do a ride along with them. And... <laughs> And basically, like, see their anti-bias training in action. Hmm. That was your first day. How was that? Oh, it was fun. I mean, it's a great job. Like, I definitely love what I do. It's definitely been fun. It's definitely more than I want to do career-wise. So I'm trying to figure out, you know, how those things act in congruence with The Daily Show or how to do them within the construct of The Daily Show. Mm Mm-hmm. So, you know, that part of it has been interesting, but I mean, you know, it's, it's fun. You know, you get to talk to weird people and you get to use comedy as a vehicle to bring lights to issues. And I don't, I'm not going to sit here and act like we defend every single issue or we can perfectly, how can I put it? There isn't a joke to be told that will solve racism, but maybe it'll help someone understand it just a little bit more, just a little bit more. <laughs> I love like like this political, would you call it satire or comedy, which you guys yeah. do in Chappelle. I love him because he does it and he don't give a fuck. It's just like, <laughs> like, okay, I'm going to talk about this. This is funny. You might not like it and I don't care. So anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Season three, we will continue the new segment called Ask the dog. If you have any questions related to musculoskeletal injuries or musculoskeletal health, go to my website www.weouilife.com. Click on the tab voicemail, leave your voicemail, and select messages will be aired and answered on the segment. Now back to the show. Tell me about the, the most interesting, I guess, day on The Daily Show. Something that just stood out. The night Trump got elected. No. Oh. Hmm. I remember looking up at the ceiling and we had these balloons. <laughs> we had these victory balloons up in the ceiling. And the debate as the night went on was, should we still peel the balloons? You know, should we still let the balloons fall and then we were like yeah you know what no let's not let's leave but it was just one of those nights where we essentially had two scripts written for it was a live show it was a live broadcast and we had two scripts written one if trump wins one if hillary wins and if they're undecided then there's just certain jokes we would not do okay and kind of play it middle of the road so trump wins or it's clear that he's going to win like at the, we went to bed on election night with the election still up in the air. Trump wasn't like officially declared until like two, three in the morning or something. So that night, though, you could feel the mood in the room changing. Like I'm talking about with the studio audience and everything. And that part of it was eerie. But we still had jokes. We still had a show to do. We still had a performance to put up. So. Instead of performing the jokes, it kind of became this running joke of, well, here's the joke that I would have done. <laughs> we had a president by now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that was by far probably the most interesting and electric night. Also, it was a live show. And live shows just have a way of being a better. It's like stand up. It's just better. It just is. It, you know, people are alive. Yeah. Yeah. People are just alive. You know, it. You know, you don't get a second take. <laughs> you know, that part of it I love. You just got to keep going. Hey, I know, you, I know you're feeling some emotions right now, but we're back from commercial break in 15 seconds. <laughs> so I need you to get it together. Get it together. <laughs> yeah. When you were growing up, who was your favorite comedian? Or did you have a few? Uh, Sinbad, George Carlin, Rondell Sheridan was always very funny to me. 
that was it. And my dad had albums in vinyl. It was Pryor and Red Foxes or whatever. But, you know, comedy is about accessibility. And so for me, it was about the people that I could actually see and touch. And Sinbad and Carlin especially, there would always be the HBO free preview weekend. Mm-hmm. So people forget that like once a year, everybody on earth got HBO. No matter who you were, you got HBO. Like, and so that, well, if you had a cable box or whatever. <laughs> so like that became the way to see stand-up comedy for me. Mm-hmm. And that was probably why those two, you know, really, really stood out. Sinbad for sure, because he also had primetime stand-up comedy specials. And I wish people would understand how crazy it is for a network show to give a black man mm-hmm. a live, live stand-up comedy special in prime time. The amount of trust you need in that person is is absolutely unreal. Um, but yeah, Sinbad. Sinbad, Sinbad for okay. sure. So um, you've also been involved in some shows, comedy shows, Sullivan and Sons. And it was a pilot with Whoopi. And I know you were going to do your own show about some of your experience at FAMU. Yeah, we talked about that a little bit. Like, because like when I was in college, I got arrested for stealing some jeans. And I had a really cool probation officer, man. And he was as integral a part in me not being a dummy anymore as anyone else. Mm-hmm. So I had a show at Comedy Central called uh, Jefferson County Probation. It ended up not getting made. Um, I might take it somewhere else. Uh, Sullivan and Son, that's a special show because the creator and star of it, this guy named Steve Byrne, who's another comedian, Steve was very, very important in fighting to get me on that show at a time where a lot of people were not a fan of me. Mm Mm-hmm. That was special because I also learned a lot on that show. Like that show was low key, like my acting school for three years. I got 33 episodes. And then also the first season, I didn't get a lot of lines. So I was able to just sit within a scene and watch people act. Mm -hmm. And like that was, hmm, that was very, that was very important. You know, that time was very important, but you know, doing television, um, you know, that's always every comedian's dream is to be able to be a part of a sitcom. But, you know, you also want to be on something that's good. You also want to create something that's special. And so that's kind of what I was able to do eventually with Jefferson County Probation. Um, you made an untitled medical field comedy for NBC. I didn't create that. It's called uh, Rhonda Mitchell, MD. And so that's about a black woman. It's a Carolyn Pierre outlier. Uh, she works as a physician's assistant in the Bronx. And she created a show that shows the world of medicine and healthcare at the community level, which is where most of us have interactions with health professionals. Everybody's not going to the hospital every time they stub their toe or got a bad cough. They're going to see people in their neighborhood. And I think looking and exploring the healthcare crisis at that ground level is definitely something that's needed. I'm thankful that NBC agreed and at least, you know, greenlit us to get the scripts in, hopefully we get the pilot and hopefully we get a series. So, you know, people can see a black women's running things. That'd be nice. I'm in the medical field and I can see a lot in my, in my daily um, life at the hospital that will make people laugh. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, Carolyn was, you know, just, you know, telling me a lot about, you know, different things that were going on, you know, at the clinic and how sometimes, Small things that you wouldn't consider. You know, there's people out there who have to pay for food, who pay for their health care with food because they still can't afford the copay. And so there's just all of these different, I don't know, there's a lot of different windows into the world of healthcare that don't have to be in some sexy hospital with a bunch of people talking fast and making decisions on car crash victims, which is part of it. But that ain't all of it. So, you know, I'm always curious about I'm always curious about how things the prisms through which we see things and the way that is not traditional. Like when you really look at a show about probation officers, it's a law enforcement show. Probation is a form of law enforcement. 
Mm-hmm. But when you look at the way law enforcement is shown on television, it's strictly cop and criminal, lawyer and criminal, or jail. That's true. There's never anything that shows that journey of rehabilitation, that journey of redemption. And I think that's the part of it that I want to explore, not just with the probation show, but just things in general, just any content that I make in general. I want to explore systems that we thought we knew and just look at different ways to get into them and talk about them, Uh, which is why I did that National Guard show. I'm doing this National Guard show with Fox now mm-hmm. that I created. And, you know, and that's on a script deal and everything. So, you know, in that regard, like, like, okay, like, so like the National Guard, to me, the issue is this. Mm-hmm. When you look at what they do, the role of the National Guard is to placate Americans, like, like, they're the band-aid for larger government issues. Like the like we, we think of the National Guard as this company who just comes in and passes out soup after the tornado hits. Mm-hmm. As we speak right now, as we speak, there are guardsmen driving school buses. There are guardsmen that are working in nursing homes and in our prison system. There are some that are filling in as school teachers mm-hmm. in some areas struck by COVID. So it's hard to really... So, like there was a there was a thing that was happening. This is for real. This was happening in Florida, where the National Guard was coming in and evacuating people in the neighborhood because there was a wastewater reservoir that was about to collapse and might have flooded the town. Well, the reason why it was going to collapse is because politicians twenty years ago didn't do X Y Z and didn't approve X Y Z as they were instructed to by the town folk. So now, as a result of that government malfeasance, the citizens are the ones who are going to suffer. So that part of it, you know, the National Guard, and I don't think people understand this enough, you know, they're basically America's Band-Aid, but we try to treat them like a cure for something, and they're not. So I think within that construct, within that world, there's a way to show that without it being over the top or hitting people on the head and shit like that. So, you know, that's another show that I'm done. So, you know, generally speaking, those are the types of projects that I'm attracted to. Those are, that's the stuff, that's the TV that I want to make right now. You know, we had one in, on HBO that didn't go with HBO Max with um, Danny Fernandez about mental health and exploring the world of mental health and things like that. So, you know, I'm just, I'm just, I'm grateful that I've had a few at bats to make TV shows about things that I, that I give a damn about and not just some traditional yuck, yuck. Yeah. Out the box, which, uh, which I like. Yeah. That's, that's, that's my goal. That's my goal is to always exist outside that box. So you debuted on many primetime shows, late night with David Letterman, Def Comedy Jam, late night with Seth Meyer, tonight show, late night show. When did you say to yourself, like, I made it? Or do you still say, have I made it? I don't feel like I've made it. I don't know if I'll ever feel that. I might feel that if my mom retires or if I could retire my mom, (laughs) put it that way. (laughs) You know, uh, I can look back on what I've done. and I definitely feel like I've done, I've done a lot, you know, and I've done well. And I feel very fortunate, especially when I look back on my career and I can look at I could look at other comedians who have, you know, quit or died, worse, gave up, but they're still trying, which is a living death. You know, you know, I have a son, so I'm thankful that I'm able to put some food on the table and make sure he's straight and tuck a little bit away for him. So if I die too soon, he'll have some money to do something with. Yeah, I don't know. I think making it is being able to make creative choices that are free and clear of how money informs your creative choices. Mm -hmm. To me, that's making it is when you can make choices independent of money. And I don't think I'm quite there yet. Okay. (laughs) So although you, you haven't made it, you do a lot for the communities. Tell me some of your philanthropic endeavors and, and why. I wouldn't, I really wouldn't even, 
begin to even think like if you got some down, ask me about them. But like I literally and it sounds crazy, but I don't know. I just sometimes I just help people. Some people need help. And I'll retweet you. Some folks I try to help. You know, I see me incorporated in Birmingham. Mm-hmm. I ride for them hard. You know, if I'm doing things or, you know, it's sponsored by the charity. What charity are you here for? I usually rep. I see me incorporated. I see me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I see me Inc. They put books by black authors with black images in the hands of black kids in these school systems that traditionally don't do that. So the kids can see images of themselves doing dope stuff so that they're the imaginative of po- what is possible as a creative is is there, you know, like it, it's, you don't have to think, can I do that? Like, no, you know, cause you've seen it in a book. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a developmental urban baseball school, which helps to make sure that black kids get opportunities to play baseball. Baseball is becoming a classist sport. So, you know, dubs definitely helps to fund camps and equipment and things that get these kids the things that get these kids what they need to get to that next level, the stuff that I didn't have, which is why I was on the bench, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is why I was on the bench <laughs> cracking on people. <laughs> so was baseball your favorite sport growing up? Yeah. Baseball is still my favorite sport. Baseball, baseball is the analogy of life. Hmm. How was that? For small moments of success, being a team player, but you're also alone. Baseball is a team sport, but pretty much everything that you do on the field and off the field is alone, but it contributes to a greater good. Mm-hmm. That part of it makes it perfect. It teaches patience. Hmm. Yeah, it does. And analysis, predicting things based on things you've seen. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that part of it is, I don't know, it's it's beautiful. I just think it's perfect. I just think it's the perfect sport. For understanding life. Okay. And so, you know, it's part of why I want my son to start playing it because he needs to. How old is your son? Uh, He's five. Okay. He's five. So part of my podcast is to feature guests who have overcome obstacles to make it to their finish line. And I remember hearing your homecoming convocation about, I guess, how you got in some trouble at FAMU and how... I guess that was an obstacle and how I guess the school rallied around you and invested in you and poured into you and made you the sex you are today. And it inspired me. And I thought that you would be a good guest to inspire my listeners. My podcast is called Running is Cheaper Than Therapy, but it's not solely based on running and sports. I like to inspire people. Not just in sports, but in life. And I thought your story was inspirational. Well, thank you for having me on. I'll still take this over running, though. (laughs) Couldn't pay me to run. (laughs) Not no damn way. (laughs) Maybe you walk or something. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, go walking or something. So can you share your story, I guess, about, um, I guess, what happened at FAMU and, and, and how it basically you know, helped mold you into the man you are today and helped you actually with your company, actually, right? Yeah, I mean, I think it helped me more with just being on code in terms of helping people because and also not turning your back on people because an interesting thing happens when you get arrested is that you lose a lot of your friends, (laughs) you know, you lose a lot of people that are. And so what happens is that people assume the worst of you because you've made a mistake. So they assume that you're the sum of your mistakes. Mm -hmm. But what I had in school was administrators who, and I'm not going to say all of them, not everybody going to believe in you, but all you need is one or two, you know, all you need is one or two. And so in having that, you know, the teacher who encouraged me to shoot the extra documentary or the teacher who kept a wild eye on me after class. And keep in mind, I'm still doing stand up comedy all the while this is happening. You know, those people, those people were a big help. 
You know, there was this gentleman, William E. Gilmore. You know, he saw me perform locally at a bar show. And this is what I mean by once you got out of Florida, what happens is that when you perform in, on the student nights at Florida State, you're only meeting other college comedians, college-aged comedians. Mm-hmm. You get out in them bars, you meeting grown men. Mm-hmm. This is a man with a family and a car seat <laughs> in his truck. <laughs> you know, 19, I'm riding around with a, like, he may as well have been a 45-year-old father of six. Knowing what I know now, I was 19. He was maybe like 24, 25. He was just a good dude. So, you know, those people, those those moments, those things all help. You know, they're definitely an important part of my growth and how I was able to, I don't know, I can just look back on my career. I'm very lucky to be able to look back on my career and see all of the moments where specific people did something that helped. And that part of it is just something I've never forgotten. So, you know, I go through life trying to help other people, probably to my detriment of my scheduling. So it's it's something I'm being better about now, you know, working harder at telling people no, Mm because you're still going to catch folks who are going to try and take advantage of you. But, you know, the game is the game. Uh, But yeah, you know, that part of it, that part of my life, shaped me into everything that I am today and just a lot of the tenements that I live by and my approach to many, many things is rooted in that. Is is rooted in the lessons that I learned in that time. Mm-hmm. You know, and also it's given me a lot of perspective on throwing out people because they made a mistake. You know, people aren't disposable. Mm-hmm. I believe most of us are redeemable in some shape, form, or fashion. Could be wrong, but it's worth taking a second look at someone after they've made a mistake. Now, I'm not saying if you murdered 12 people and ate the bodies, <laughs> that we got to give you a second chance. But I don't know. We're just quick to assume that people are forever the sum of their worst moments and that they're not capable of anything greater. And so I just assume that anybody I meet is capable of something greater because I was able to pull out of that. True. Like no one is perfect. And I think everybody deserves a second chance. Yeah. Not everybody gets one, though. Yeah. With our cancel culture, we're quick to dismiss people. I think more so than back in the day, but I may be wrong. Yeah. They love to do that. They for sure love to do that. But hey, that's the game. Cream rises to the top. The people that are resilient will survive. True. So what's on your bucket list? Do you have a bucket list? I just want to write a film or two. I just want to make a piece of TV content that's decent, that could speak to something. Mm -hmm. After that, I just want to tour. There's a one-man show that I want to do. I really want to talk about myself and my life more than the world. I'm, I'm mentally exhausted on talking about the woes of society. Yeah, I don't want to talk about it anymore. So I'm going to talk about myself. But that's like a boxer switching from orthodox to southpaw. So I have to relearn everything. I don't know what that means, but... Mm-hmm. Yeah, from righty to lefty. It's like writing with your left hand. Changing your comedic perspective, it's hard. Like, anybody could write with their left hand. Like, if you needed to write a message... Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, I, yeah, you signed it before if you broke your arm or whatever, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> But it ain't going to change everything. It's not going to be perfect. So I need to learn, you know, dribbling with my left hand, I guess. You know, so that's just going to take some time. So I'm going to work on that for the next couple of years and then start getting back out there. But that's the plan. Okay. So if a modern day Roy could go back and talk to your younger self, what advice would you give yourself? Start comedy sooner and go to summer camps and get better at baseball instead of working summer jobs to buy shoes that you're just going to tear up. Total waste of time. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe I'd be making millions. (laughs) Maybe somewhere making millions. So any last minute words of advice for my listeners? Nope. If they ain't got it by now, they ain't going to get it. (laughs) 
I respect your listeners, but I'm not. If everything that I've said in the last 45 minutes, has, <laughs> you ain't found a nugget in that. Just quit. <laughs> Whatever your goal is, just quit. <laughs> Go work because you ain't got it in you. You ain't got no fight in you. Uh, find people that are in alignment with the same drive as you, who have the same drive as you. Even if they don't have the same goals, drive is communal and everyone understands hustle. True that. On the days that you're going to be very, very stressed, you need to be around and with people who, who understand that. Great advice. Great advice. Where can people find you? Um, myname.com or at sign in front. Roy Wood Jr. No S. Roy Wood Jr. And that's either at or dot com. And that's me. All right. Well, I thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule. All good. All good. And tell me about, tell me quickly about your, your podcast. Oh, my podcast is Roy's Job Fair. It's about employment. And then I also host another podcast with the daily show. It's called Beyond the Scenes. And that is a podcast about, we go deeper into topics that we've already discussed on the daily show mm -hmm. and break them down with experts of people that we've already interviewed. Okay. All right. Well, thanks again. All right. Well, thank you. That wraps up this episode of Running is Cheaper Than Therapy podcast. Thank you for tuning in. If you already haven't, please download Running is Cheaper Than Therapy podcast on Apple, Spotify, or however you listen to your favorite podcast. If you have any questions, concerns, or possible show topics, Please email Run It Is Cheaper Than Therapy, OLB, Omaha Love Brown. Again, that's Run It Is Cheaper Than Therapy, Omaha Love Brown at gmail.com. I also can be reached via Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube. Handle We Life, We Love. OUI Life, OUI Love. Thank you, and please tune in again.